You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, you've come to the right place. And if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of sarcasm and also a bit of this, then welcome home. We're glad to have you here. On today's show, we're going to be talking about dust. More specifically, when is it time to kick off all that dust? Because you got to keep moving and you got to keep growing. But before we descend into that, just a reminder that this broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Amazon, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, YouTube. We're here, we're there, we're everywhere. And if you want to interact more with the show, you can find Snarky Faith on Facebook. You can drop me a line at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And there's even a snarky hotline if you want to leave a message. That'll probably end up on the air. The number is 919-525-1570. That's 919-525-1570. So as we begin the show today, I wanted to give a couple shout-outs to some other podcasts out there in the internet landtopia sphere of where we're out yes out on the <laughs> in the interwebs that's what i was looking for so yes there are some other podcasts out there i want to recommend because hey i'm on them what yes we, you had carolee Connolly on our show who wrote good white racist a while back i was on her podcast called mystic justice podcast i was on that a little while back and it just came out it was lots of fun and also i'm going to be showing up over on sonic cinema with brian scuttle a movie critic and his podcast will be talking about the films of Terrence Malick, or at least two of them. So look out for those in the coming days. Just wanted to shout out to all those. And I hope everyone is doing wonderful today. We're here in the middle of August in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and it kind of feels like the other side of the sun. We're just melting and somehow trying to stay cool in the dog days of summer. But how's your summer going? Hopefully you're not melting. Hopefully you're doing quite well this week. Me, I've probably said this before on the show, but I've got two, my two oldest kids will be exiting the house in the next two weeks. Now, because of the pandemic, my oldest didn't go off to be a freshman in college last year. Well, he was still a freshman in college. He just did it all virtually, so he was not on campus. So we're actually, I've got my son I'm dropping off this week, my daughter I'm dropping off next week. And the house is going to be very quiet, because I've got it. It's hard when you go to one to two. Enough, right? Right? Because you have two people and one kid. And so when you have two kids, you have an adult and another adult. So, right? It's man to man defense when you've got two. But we had three. And then we had another one, four. So then you really move to loose zone defense when parenting for a while. So yes, yes, we're moving from zone defense all the way back to man-to-man defense. Ho-ho, such a win. Yes. 
It's going to be a huge change, but I'm excited for my kids and I'm excited for us to step into a new season of life. So that's the big news in my life. But you know what I want to do? I want to bring up some new news for you in a new segment that we're calling In the News. In the News. In the News is where we highlight crazy Christians in the news. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that simple, crazy Christians in the news. Okay, so the first one, this comes from theregister.com. In an article entitled, Woman Sues McDonald's for $14 after Cheeseburger ad did exactly what it was designed to do, this Orthodox Christian said that the mouth-watering banner, the advertisement, made her break her lint fast. And she's mad about it. That's right. Her last name, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb with this one. So, Mrs. Ovichnikova. Ovichnikova. Let's just commit to that one. Yes. Miss Ovichnikova uh, filed a complaint that she had been successfully fasting through Lent for 16 years until McDonald's. Quoting from the article, in her statement, she said, by this point, I'd been fasting for a month. But when I saw an advertising banner, I could not help myself. I visited McDonald's and bought a cheeseburger. In the actions of McDonald's, I see a violation of the consumer protection law. I ask the court to investigate. And if a violation has taken place, I oblige McDonald's LLC to compensate me for moral damage in the amount of 1,000 rubles, which is about $14. So when it comes to Jesus and Lent, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, He's not loving it. He's not loving it at all. Next, over from the Religion News Service, their article entitled, Orlando's Holy Land Theme Park Sold by TNN to a Healthcare Company? What? Yes, Trinity Broadcast Network sold the Christian-based theme park for a reported $32 million to a Seventh-day Adventist healthcare company. I mean, come on. How does that not pair together like wine and gravel. I don't really see how those two really go together, but either way, uh, the article says this, Trinity Broadcast, Trinity Broadcasting Network, the park's owner since 2007, sold the roughly 15-acre museum and tourist attraction to Adventist Health Systems, Inc. The healthcare company, also known as Advent Health, was founded by Seventh-day Adventist Church to extend the healing ministry of Christ, according to the IRS fi filings. So, come on! If we're here about healthcare and the Holy Land experience, I kind of see how those things fit totally together, but I don't at all. You know the one thing? Womp womp for TBN. Back in 2007, they purchased this for $37 million, and they're only selling it for 32. Come on! The Holy Land experience isn't what it used to be. Sad. Fake tear. Ding. Next. Christians in Mississippi are doing God's good work here, covered by, where am I at over here? I'm over here on the Friendly Atheist here. In an article entitled, Christians erect a giant cross near the Mississippi Highway after raising $240,000. Could they have fed hungry people? Sure. Could they have helped out in their community in ways that would have helped people in a very Christian-like manner? Absolutely, they could have. But did they actually decide to go ahead and just make a huge symbol on the side of the highway that just screams Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think that's what they went. They're, a, help people uh, uh, be like Jesus. No, 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 no. Oh, 
big, big, big cross on the side of the highway that's going to do what exactly? What is, what do, we, do we assume like this large idol is going to please God? God is like, I hate, I hate the state of business. Oh, wait a second. There's a huge cross on the side of the highway. It's 120 feet tall, 64 feet wide. And as the article puts it, 0% useful. And I would agree with that. Thank you, friendly atheists, for this one too. Because yeah, this is, this is, this is the beautiful work of Christians doing absolutely nothing productive for the kingdom of God whatsoever. But it doesn't stop them, and I can't wait to see next what a bunch of idiot Christians are willing to blow a ton of money on for the glory of God. Wait, no, I mean the glory of themselves. That sounds better. Next, this last bit of the news here that we have is, is not necessarily, this is more editorial portion of the news, because this is something that I've noticed looking through the news over the past while, because I'm seeing this happen more and more and more as we're seeing the Delta variant take over more and more and more of the red states in our country, I'm seeing articles where we're having pastor who was against COVID dies of COVID. Pastor who said the COVID was a hook, hoax, dies of COVID. And we keep seeing things like this. So here's my question to you. And I'm being absolutely serious because I'm a jerk apparently. When is it objectively funny to laugh at this? I mean, seriously, I, I'm, I'm being absolutely honest and I know it sounds snarky, but, but, at some point, at some point, this has to just become comical. Like, like we've moved beyond irony, like miles back. We, we, when it was sad, when it was, when all those things, that, that's, that's, that's long ago. But we have something that's absolutely preventable, that's actually free from the government, where people can go out and get vaccines. But instead, these yahoos are out here preaching against this, and then we see they're dying from it. So they're putting people in a dubious situation by telling them lies. And these are also ministry people that have been telling their people lies. And then they end up dying. So that's just my big ponderance of the week. When is it, when is it objectively funny? Like, when can we start going, okay, <laughs> well, what do you expect? One plus one equals two. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too snarky for my own good. But it's a question I've got in my brain. Hmm. I'll have to percolate on that one and leave it for next time. So, hey, it's our first run of In the News. I think we did exceedingly well so far. Beautiful. In what's that here, off in the distance? It's the sound of an old man muttering to himself. Who could it be? What does it mean? I'm hearing voices. Do you hear them too? I, I can kind of hear. Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, I believe the, the, the name is Danielle. And yeah, you've actually had a knife wound or something cut, uh, I believe, in the, in the, you're in, uh, right in your chest. Somebody stuck a knife in you, and the Lord just heals you in Jesus' name. Jesus! Seriously! Well, when we hear Pat Robertson muttering in the ether, that does mean it's time for the choicest cuts of Christian nuts, the worst of Christianity of the week. That's right. The Christian crazy. Here we go! If loving the Lord is wrong... I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Pat Robertson apparently praying for a woman who had been stabbed in the chest. That God was going to heal the stabbing. <laughs> Sorry. Just giving you a taste. Just giving you a little taste of the craziness and the insanity of Christianity. 
because we've got more. We've got lots more. So I'd mentioned earlier how the Delta variant is just cannibalizing red states now in our country and is just hitting hard against all of the unvaccinated out there. Now, with all of this going on, what would you expect your church leaders to be telling you? Right? I think you'd expect them to be saying, do what's wise, uh, consult your doctor, be safe, be safe, be safe, don't be stupid. Or they could be like Joshua Fiorenstein here. Listen to me. I understand and let me speak now to the cameras around the world, to every pastor that's watching this broadcast, to every Christian that has cowered in your home. I realize that for this last year that maybe you've been fed fear and fear and fear, but the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You have a sound mind. You don't have to wear the mask. You got Jesus. You don't need the vaccine. You got Jesus. You don't need to worry about the stab wound in your heart. <laughs> you got Jesus. You don't need to worry about what is this? This is so stupid. And this is part of why we try to call it this kind of Christianese crap where, where they are peddling something that I would say is completely anti-biblical. You're telling people to put their heads in the sands or put their heads up their ass and not pay attention to what is going on around them. And you just need to rely on the name of Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. It's insanity. You know what is also insanity? Greg Locke. And let's check in with Greg Locke and see how him and his church on a Sunday morning are handling all this COVID stuff. Hmm? I don't think it's going to go too well. Do you? If you know Greg Locke, turn the volume down because Greg Locke is one of those people that only knows how to use his outside voice inside. Quarantine camps for the uninformed people that are still in refusal to be vaccinated. Look, if that don't bother you, you might as well show up at another church next week because I'm going to keep raising Cain about all this nonsense. I don't care what Bill Lee says. I don't care what fraudulent fake Joe Biden says. I don't care what Planned Parenthood says. I don't care what Chris Cuomo says. I don't care what Gavin Newsom says. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi and her insurrectionist nonsense has to say. So that's basically just a typical Sunday in Greg Locke's church, filling it full of nonsense, conspiracy theories, hate, and general dumb fuckery. Check, check, check. That's Greg Locke. Now, did I ever mention that allegedly Greg Locke beat and spit on his first wife and then divorced her and ran off with the church secretary? <laughs> it just makes too much sense. It really does. It really does. Not only are these people in the Christian crazy terrible pastors, they're generally terrible human beings as well. And a great example of one of those is Pastor Nathan French. Now, let's just go ahead and set the stage here. You're at church, you've sung your worship, and you're now sitting down to listen to your pastor preach. And he begins with this. I know some of you uh, don't like President Trump, but he's actually the president of the United States of America. <laughs> oh, 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 my goodness. <laughs> what was that? I don't really know, 
but it's definitely weird. It's definitely odd. And you kind of just wait for Nathan to quit suckling on Trump's old dead orange teat at this point. Because come on, really, this how is this equipping the body of Christ? What does this have to do with anything? Oh, wait. Their Messiah is, is the orange bastard. Okay, never mind. Checks out, checks out, checks out. Okay. One of my favorites that we have going in the Christian crazy, uh, who's, 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 who's come kind of as a dark horse out of nowhere to become one of my favorites, and that would be none other than Robin Bullock. Robin Bullock it's even hard to just totally describe him. Aside from him being like an 80s hairband reject who's still wearing his pleather jacket and dyeing his long black hair. But Robin's, but Robin's also a prophet. He's a prophet who doesn't give up. If he prophesies incorrectly, it doesn't matter. He just dusts himself off and steps up again and creates another lie for a new day. It's totally inspirational how he just keeps going. Don't believe me? Oh, Robin, Robin, tell us about your latest prophecy about when Trump will get back in office. Tell us, tell us. I was standing in a live service and you know how the Lord will just speak and he'll just speak to me like that. And I'm, I'm just standing there. And when I, I started giving this prophetic word and when I turned around and looked, I just turned my head and the Lord let me know that the decision has been made. Whatever's going to happen, whenever he's going to do this, when whatever Trump's going to do, when it's going to happen has been decided now. It's not going to be decided. He's already decided. So um, this whole thing, you're about to see a rapid unfolding. Wow. I'll tell you something else, too, that I, uh, that I heard the Lord say, and I haven't told this anywhere. Okay. That, um, you know, I'm not... Unless the Lord tells me a specific date of something, I'm not, I don't say that. But if he tells me, I'll tell you. And, um, but I know something. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I know what yet because he hadn't showed me that. But he quickened my spirit. Something is really about to happen this month in August. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a setup for something else that's coming but i think from august all the way through oh say november you better keep heads up heads up big so heads up people heads up big because robin bullock is as clear as mud and making things as vague as possible because i think that's what the prophets are doing now to kind of hedge their bets because they just kept getting it wrong don't they know this makes god just look stupid Eh, they don't care. All right, that's almost too much Christian crazy for one day. But if you still want more, if you still want more, you can wait till the end of the show. So that's if you're listening on terrestrial radio here in Chapel Hill in Carborough, North Carolina. You're going to have to listen to what happens after this broadcast that you can find on podcasts. So at the end, what I'm going to offer you is a bit of bonus Christian crazy. Mm-hmm. Done by none other than King of Bullshit, Hank Kuhneman. And you're going to have to listen to Hank Kuhneman's beautiful prayer that totally belongs in church, that totally belongs in reality, that, that it's, it's going to be nuts. But if you want to go there, don't say I haven't warned you. Just wait around till the end of the show. The end and the end after that. So what happens 
after we're done, there's even more for you. All right, enough of this. Let's move on to our main conversation topic for today. So what I want to do here is let you enter into a bit of my headspace for our conversation today that's going to be about rot, dust, and why we need to keep growing. So later this week, I've been preparing to be on the Sonic Cinema podcast. I've been on there before. My friend Brian Scuttle that runs it, who's a film critic, has also been on the show uh, a while back as well. And he's having me on the show to talk about Terrence Malick films. And if you haven't ever watched a Terrence Malick film, it's, it's, they're quite an experience. And depending upon your attention span <laughs> and how much patience you have. It's either an enjoyable experience or it can be one that may drive you crazy. Uh, but the two films we were talking about, or we will be talking about, are Tree of Life and A Hidden Life. And both of these are films that I really do adore for very, very different reasons. Tree of Life is very much dreamlike as you watch it, but it's really a narrative about life and death, and dealing with loss, and grief, and what all knits us together. And the other film, A Hidden Life, is about a conscientious objector from Austria that refuses to pledge his allegiance to Hitler. He's eventually jailed and eventually executed, but really it's about the core of it is about standing up for a single idea. This idea that if I did this, I would be wrong. And I don't want to do wrong in this scenario. And how that, that singularity of an idea was more important than what was going to happen to this main character. If that makes sense. Meaning that in his mind, for him to acquiesce would change who he is. And by changing who he is he becomes a different person, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of, it, a lot of it like is, 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 is very spiritual narratives, but also very psychological. And, and in that, in that headspace, that, that kind of Malik headspace, I've been pondering life and nature versus nurture and, and how, we, how we form what it means, what we believe. Like, how do we form our belief systems? And, and I was, over the past weekend, I was hanging out with a bunch of my friends chatting about things like deconstruction. And, and for having people that were at different positions in their faith and going through processes of reevaluating faith and deconstructing faith and reconstructing faith and being in that space, we, we kept talking about these times where we would come and almost like we were hitting a wall to where the questions that I have right now in my faith, the, the, the space that I'm in here, maybe it's this church or this tribe or this group or this organization, this, this community that I have, my questions don't fit this community. Like, they don't understand it, and it's almost challenging them too much for me to keep asking these questions. Example, I worked for a, a nonprofit organization uh, years back, and I was on their leadership board. And it was an evangelistic organization. And, and for the longest time, I kind of felt like my role on the board was to be the one that was pushing back against the direction that we were going in. Uh, to push back, to continue to question, like, okay, we can boil evangelism down to something very simple and, and very 
inert, but at the same time, are we doing the gospel justice by boiling it down to pray a prayer, do this, and you're saved forever. And so what I, what I began to notice over time was that I was really just creating more frustration within myself and with others as I was challenging our view of what the gospel was to where I eventually had to ask myself, so for me to stay here means I'm going to continue to be a headache <laughs> to others and then vicariously make myself uh, a headache to myself by continuously putting myself in the situation. And so eventually for me, for me to grow meant I had to move to a different space. I needed to move to a different space. And it makes me also think I've got a, one of my good friends, Josh is a, I would call him a suburban farmer. Uh, and what I love about him is his love of cultivating plants. And Josh lives in a suburban neighborhood, but has pretty much tried to maximize all possible dirt on his property <laughs> to be like a suburban farmer. And I love it. I love watching him try to maximize every ounce of space to bring forth life. But a lot of times, we have to leave where we're at to be able to continue on to where we're supposed to go. So for me to continue to grow means I need to move away from this space. Otherwise, I'll be stuck here. I'll be stuck here to rot. And, 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 in that, and, and, that, and with, with that group of friends, we, we were talking just about those, those questions and those things that, that, that wrestled in our minds for so long. And I think it's well summarized in the words of Michelle Collins from her book, Into the Gray, The Mental and Emotional Aftermath of Spiritual Deconstruction. And she begins to describe it like this. I, I liked how she put her process. She said, for years, I was involved in Bible reading, communion, religious study, and all the activities that make up the religious experience. Yet nowhere along the way did I stop to evaluate what I was learning or what I believed. I just functioned without a lot of thought. I called it faith. I'm sure others would not identify it that way. She later says this too, kind of in the same frame of mind. She says, I am convinced that this is the answer to my question pertaining to how I could have missed so many of these obvious questions for so long. I did not miss these questions. They just took time to find their place alongside other ideas. And so in, in this, what Michelle Collins is, is synthesizing is this idea that oftentimes we just get caught up in these systems of faith. Maybe we were born into them. Maybe we stepped into them uh, in our young adult or adult lives. But either way, we, we, we go through the system of acclimating ourselves to a faith that we then follow practices and listen to other people about what we're supposed to do, read, believe, and otherwise. And for the life of most people that that have just grown up around church or just simply go to church, you simply know that you go and you learn by what people tell you or books you read or things of that nature, okay? Now, what I'm talking about today is this, this need for us to continue to grow. And we're also talking about deconstruction in this process. And I'm going to hop over to, this is an article by Karen Swallow Pryor over on the Religion News Service entitled, this is, uh, with this much rot, there's no choice but to deconstruct. Now, quote her article saying this, deconstruction is a scary word for most of us. In the 1980s, when I was in grad school, deconstruction was all the buzz in literary theory. But the deconstruction we are hearing about in Christian circles today is something different. It describes 
everything from deconversion to ex-evangelicalism to ultimately reaffirming one's belief after serious examination. Deconstruction is essentially describes what happens when a person asks the questions that lead to careful dismantling of their previous beliefs. And then what she goes on to describe is, is one summer in this article where she and her husband decided to renovate a bathroom. Now, they wanted to renovate it because of cosmetic reasons, but as they started to pull out toilets and as they started to pull out tubs, they started to realize that they got in more than they bargained for, that underneath the veneer of what looked okay, there was rot, and there were a lot of problems. And then I'm hopping back in the article here. She says, to be clear, the bathroom we had before was adequate, even more adequate by many measure, or so we thought. We had no idea until we peeled away the veneer that there was rot underneath, deep rot, dangerous rot. That kind of rot requires major deconstruction. And now you can probably see where I'm going with this. In the church, that kind of rot can lead people to deconstruction of their faith. Abuse, cover-up of abuse, racial strife, lack of integrity, membership declines, partisan divisions, and divisions over disagreements about how extensive these divisions are. An abusive leader in this corner, a negligent board over here, world-renowned apologists accused of raping and trafficking women over there, and the wounded pile up everywhere like debris on the lawn. And de yes, deconstruction is, is risky. It entails the danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And as a church body, during these messy processes, it is our job to help hold those babies, but it is also jo our job to help dump that dirty water down the drain. It, it is hard, terrible work, but it is also necessary. And what's interesting, in, in her context, she's talking about how we can help people deconstruct properly more from the, st st <laughs> from the standpoint of the church. But if you take a step back, the main reason we need to deconstruct in the first place is because of the church. So oftentimes, the idea of doing those two places, uh, those two things in the same space, is not ideal. How can we deconstruct with the system that we're deconstructing? Especially when we're trying to pull toxicity out, how do we trust them to know what we believe and what faith is about? Well, I, I thought this may be interesting, and we're going to go over here. This is an article called Can You Choose Your Beliefs by John Beckett uh, from his blog Under the Ancient Oaks over on Patheos. Now, this, this, this is why I pulled this in. I like this. This is, this is pulling in from a different type of worldview. And he is coming from a pagan worldview. But we're talking still about these ideas about forming beliefs, forming what matters, and being able to walk those things out and how that can be a healthy thing. So this article by Beckett continues. He begins like this. As pagans and polytheists, we understand that religion isn't about what you believe. It's about what you do, who you are, and whose you are. The idea that religion is all about which set of supernatural propositions you affirm and which you reject is a very modern Western and Protestant idea, and not a very helpful one either. So this article is really trying to dig into this, this idea of what is belief. And he puts it like this. What is, what is belief? A belief is a conclusion reached in the absence of clear evidence. Unlike what skeptics claim, even the most fantastical beliefs aren't based on no evidence. Evidence may be insufficient or erroneous, but there's always a reason why people believe what they believe. For most people, for most beliefs, 
That reason is, it's what I was taught as a child. For too many people, the reason is, it's what I want to be true. Which is often because that's what we were taught as a child. We get comfortable with what we're familiar with, even if believing it harms us. The article continues with this. Some Christians like to talk about a childlike faith. Now, as a pagan, it's not my job to tell Christians how to practice Christianity. But since Christianity is the 800-pound gorilla in the Western religion and culture, I can't completely ignore it. The phrase childlike faith isn't found in the Bible, and different Christians have different opinions as to what Jesus meant when he said, like a child. But too many people, Christians to be sure, but also people of other religions, childlike faith refers to a longing for a simpler time when they didn't have to wrestle with complicated questions of metaphysics, ethics, and such. A time when they just believed what they were told. But as we're reminded, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think in the same regard, we can talk about the unexamined beliefs. Now, if churches will tell us that we need to have a childlike faith because that simply means in many ways, do what we tell you to do. We've turned childlike faith, instead of a thing of wonder, we've turned it into a system where you just do what you're told to do. It's an authoritarian system. It's a control structure. In many places, really what it's saying is, to be a part of this congregation, we essentially want to lobotomize you so you don't think and you don't question, and you keep in line. And we also do in the church what we call discipleship much in the same way. Do as I do. Read what I read. Do exactly what I'm doing here. Learn to mimic and mime to be just like Jesus in these situations, right? right? That's what we're told. But, but the idea, think of this, think of this. It, it, think of how we learn. How do we learn and how do we grow? Now, when I'm not talking on the radio, I'm an ESL teacher teaching students in mainland China. Now, one thing I have learned about the very, 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 very different modalities between how children in China are taught and how children in the U.S. are taught. And let's, let's, let's do this specifically in regards to learning a new language, specifically English. Now, most Chinese students are taught English in a very quiet manner. You are taught to memorize words. You were taught to write things over and over and over through repetition, through rote repetition over and over again as how they handle this. Do they worry about really thinking about how you speak or what situations these things fit into? No, no, no. There is a right answer. There is a wrong answer. And that's simply how they teach them, through memorization and repetition. Now, what I have found, I can have students that will test very, very well. But they can barely speak English or hold a conversation because they've been taught, they've been taught to understand language on paper, but not really understand language in action. Like, how does this fit into normal situations? How would you respond? No, I just know how to answer the, the, the question correctly. That's, that's what I know. And it's a really hard thing to help someone unlearn what they've already learned. You see, you won't learn a new language unless you're actually walking out that new language, using it, talking with it. But to simply read it and write it down over and over again will only get you so far. And I feel like we have done that with Christianity. 
we have, we have boiled it down to, I need you to memorize these verses. Oh my gosh, how many times have we been told to memorize all of these verses? But if we don't really know what they mean in context, what are we memorizing? Oh, we're memorizing like little Christian bumper stickers on our hearts to make us, ourselves feel good in times of trouble. Well, that's great. That's great. Are we teaching people to think with a Christ-like mindset? No, no, but we're teaching them to memorize things. Okay, so we're teaching people to show up at a church every Sunday uh, to sit in a chair or a pew, to stand up and sit down, to listen to another person, to nod our heads and sing, right? Again, control structure. What about that as growth? Like, if we keep doing the same things every week, where does the growth happen? Like, where is there space to grow? Well, Stuart, that's why we have small groups and Sunday schools. No, you just do the same thing a little bit more in depth. If, if the church mainly exists in a church building, you have learned to follow acts of procession and ceremony, but you haven't really learned at all what it means to be a Christian. And that's the weird thing is somehow that we have told people being a Christian is showing up somewhere on a Sunday and sitting down and listening and singing, and that's it. And it has nothing really at all to do with faith or having a holistic <laughs> faith that helps you walk it out in everyday life. One of my sons is taking driver's ed this summer. The first part of driver's ed, because of COVID, is virtual. So he gets to sit in a Zoom class and listen to a teacher teach driver's ed, which was boring enough in person. It's even worse on Zoom. But if we were to assume that's all the teaching that he was going to get and then give him a permit and say, go, son, go with God. Here are the keys, because you're going to meet God pretty quickly. No. We don't do that. No, you need to have practice out in the field doing it as well. For us to simply just sit and talk about what it means to be a Christian is very different than walking out what it means to be a Christian. And this is why, this is why so many people are walking away from the church now. Because they don't have space to, to grow. They don't have space to ask questions. They don't have space to learn. They have said to themselves, I need more space to grow. I cannot stay here and be stagnant. Now, being able to do that brings with it a risk. It brings with it a very big risk. Because once you say, I want to keep walking with Jesus, and that may mean I'm going to outgrow this community, and I'm going to keep following where God is, is taking me, it means you have to leave. And people do not like people that rock the boat that change the status quo because it challenges them in their own apathetic complacency. So one, people don't want you leaving because, hey, why are you leaving here? We're the good team. We're the best ones. And then why are you leaving here? What, what do they know that I don't know? Or why are we leaving? Oh, it must be sin. It must be sin. Not that, no, it must just be that I'm being too faithful and this place is toxic to me and my faith. Because we do not want to be people that continue to live in situations of decay and situations of rot. Because one, it's not healthy for you. And two, if it's not healthy for you, it's not healthy for those around you either. So that brings me to Jesus, of course. You are listening to a show called Starkey Faith. We were eventually going to get here anyways, right? So we're hopping into Matthew 10. And this is an interesting bit of scripture here where Jesus is, he has 
gather together his ragtag bunch of disciples uh, who comprise themselves mainly of teenagers and young adults who have walked away from their jobs and livelihood because they think they are doing the work of the kingdom. Now, how would each of them define what the work of the kingdom is? How would they define <laughs> what they think Jesus is up to? Well, you'd get a mixed bag of questions from these guys because they didn't quite get it yet, and they weren't going to get it yet for a little while. But so imagine this. So yes, Jesus has this ragtag bunch of disciples. He's been walking with them. He's been teaching them things, okay? So here's where we pick up. This is going to be uh, Matthew 10, beginning with verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go amongst the Gentiles or enter, in, enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So first what Jesus is doing is saying, okay, We've been together for a bit of time here. And even if you're looking at this in the context of the story, Matthew 10, we're pretty much near the beginning of this whole Jesus narrative. And yet, what is he doing? Jesus is going ahead and saying, you guys, have, you've seen enough. God's with you. Go. What's also interesting is what does he tell them? He says, hey, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. First, just go to Israel. Go to the people that are supposed to be the children of God. Now, we know later in the story... <laughs> They, they reject him more than the others. And we see that the Gentiles and the Samaritans are like, but wait, we want to hear. We want to hear more about this. So he tells them, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Continues on nine. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Wherever, what Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And we need to unpack this a bit because there's a lot going on here. But what he's simply doing is Jesus is sending off these disciples. He's saying, you guys have heard enough. I'm going to just go ahead and send you out to go do what you're supposed to do. So already, we're not really following a church paradigm here, right? Wait, but where are they supposed to go every Sunday or Sabbath day? So Saturday. No, Jesus doesn't talk about that. He says, I'm going to send you out to do the work of God, which is to heal people, <laughs> to help people, right? And as, as, as we made fun of earlier in the show with the Christian crazy, these lunatics that are all about grifting and money, Jesus tells them, don't go out with anything. You guys go out and let those who you encounter help you. So first of all, what Jesus is doing is he's putting them in a situation where they are going to need to rely upon others. Now, to unpack that even a little bit more, we need to understand just really the whole idea behind hospitality during this time and place in history. So for a taste of that, let's go to the Jewish New Testament commentary. And I'll begin by reading this. The word shalom 
means not only peace, but also tranquility, safety, well-being, welfare, health, contentment, success, comfort, wholeness, and integrity. Thus, there is a deep meaning to Yeshua's instructions in verse 13 on when to give or withhold shalom. For he refers not only to the greeting, but the whole complex system of peace, wholeness, and well-being. So let's go on the checklist. Okay, Jesus' disciples. Do they know everything that Jesus wants them to know yet in this process? No, they've just started learning this. Number two, what does he do? Oh, he sends them out. Are they probably the best preachers and or healers? Probably not, no. But he sends them out with the Spirit of God. So that's doing two things. One, <laughs> if you want to learn, you want to grow, hop in and do it. But he also sends them out without money and tells them to go to different towns and to find a worthy person that wants to hear the message and that shows you hospitality into their house. So this is doing many things. One, they're learning and growing. They're learning to rely upon God as they go out and do this. But what does Jesus tell them? What does Jesus tell them if they are rejected? If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home in town and shake the dust off your feet. Keep going. When we get to places when, where we are feeling like we are stagnant, maybe places where we feel like we're not growing, maybe places where we feel are unhealthy, could even be toxic. Maybe there's situations where we want to leave, but we're afraid maybe God will be mad at us, or maybe my parents will be mad at us, or my community will be mad at us. But you feel like you really kind of need to follow that call of Jesus to say, I don't belong here anymore. I don't feel shalom here. I am not being offered shalom here. I need to go somewhere else. And so much of, of, of the process of being a follower of Jesus to follow after his teachings and, and, and what he's instructed us to do means that we go, we get out. We do not stay in one place. Jesus did not only hang out in the synagogue. He sent people into the synagogue to try to mess with folks, <laughs> to, to frame, reframe their mind on what the kingdom of God was about. But he spent most of the time outside outside of that building, in different towns and villages, going to different places, teaching people, sending people out to go and do likewise. That's a very active educational system. That is a system, a belief system that has with it actions, beliefs. And, and, and as we see that, you're able to see this whole system of I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. But I need to be in places where I have shalom where others are offering me shalom, that peace, that wholeness, that well-being for all of yourself. Because I'm going to say this too, is shalom is also something that is very inherently selfless. So there's no control structures in shalom. Shalom just says, I want to see you healthy and growing, and I want you to be able to go and show that same shalom, that love, that peace of God to others. And also, what does Jesus say about those that don't receive you well? He ends that part saying, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for, than for that town. Now, if we remember back Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, God destroys it. Does God destroy it because there were homosexuals in that city? As many people like to use that 
verse. No, that's actually not the purpose of it all. The city was not showing shalom. They were not showing hospitality to strangers because the Jews of this time, back in Sodom and Gomorrah's time, and the same in Jesus's time, the Jews in this time period knew what it meant to be able to welcome in the outsider, to offer hospitality, to say, come into my home. I will feed you. I will take care of you because these were all the tenets and the ethics that were supposed to be laid out on the people of God. Welcome the outsider. Welcome in the stranger. Welcome these people in and show them hospitality because God has given you hospitality. I also love what Jesus is kind of essentially getting at this whole tenet is I taught you for free. You go teach others for free. Again, the Christian crazy folks don't understand any of that. Free? What's that? <laughs> free? <laughs> That's a sin. No, they don't want it to be free. They want to put on a cloak of guilt, a cloak of control, a cloak of keeping you where you're at because you were imprisoned and trapped in a space where others are controlling you. Now, clearly, being a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I've taught you stuff. Now you go grow into it. Get out. And don't let their don't let their dust settle on you. Now, what's interesting, the last little part I want to get to is talking a little bit more about dust. Now, technically, what is dust? Yes, it's dead sin scales, uh, cells, hair, clothing fibers, bacteria, dust mites, all sorts of yummy, yummy stuff. No, but when we talk about dust in the Bible, it's a little different. We know that God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We also know that which we have heard many times before, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. But here's where it gets interesting, especially coming from ancient Jewish culture. Now, this is coming from the book The Moral Maxims of the Sages of Israel by Martin Sicker. And he says this, What is the sage attempting to convey by his urging that one become covered with the dust of their feet. Some consider this to reflect the imagery of a group of disciples sitting on earth at the feet of their master, who is seated in the stool before them. Others, however, see it as urging the disciple to follow in the footsteps of his master wherever he goes, figuratively as well as literally. In either case, the teacher may, may be understood to convey the idea that the disciple should always remain with the ambit of his master's dust or influence. So what I like here is that we have good dust, bad dust. Run with me a little bit, okay? So the first, first way they're talking about this, so one, uh, how, would, how would people learn from their rabbi or their master? Well, the, the posture they would have would be a rabbi would sit on a stool or a chair, whereas his disciples, the, his students, sit on the floor as a sign of respect. Now, they're saying here that in that way, since they're also near his feet, they could also be seen as being covered in his dust as they sit near him and listen to him teach. But at the same time, if they're also following after him, as many would do. You, there's many scenes throughout a lot of Jewish literature where you have two rabbis walking and talking to each other and arguing, and their students following behind them, taking notes. So again, you're following after your rabbi, your teacher, the one that you were aspiring to be like. So again, we have good dust, bad dust. 
And in these situations, I like this too. We also have an, a less active dust and a more active dust. We have we will sit and learn dust, and we have we're going to sit and go dust, right? So th there's a whole process in this. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this. There's a process of learning at the feet of your teacher and then going and doing out in the world as your teacher did. Now, we also juxtapose this with what Jesus told the disciples. If people don't want to receive you, they don't want to receive your message, they don't want to receive you with hospitality, they don't want to receive you with shalom. Kick their dust off of you and keep going. So here's my take. Go where you're wanted. Go where you're treated well. Go where you feel like you'll be nurtured and others care about your well-being and growth. Go and plant yourself in places where you experience shalom. Because otherwise, we get stuck in situations where we're forced to be someone we're not, doing things that we only half-heartedly believe in, because we feel like we're supposed to keep doing those things. See, when we get stuck in those places, we get stuck, we begin to rot, we decompose, and we potentially get covered in dust of people we don't want to be covered in. No, no, no. There is life out there for you. There is life out there waiting to happen. But you got to get up and you got to move on. You see, I didn't begin deconstructing my faith because I thought it was cool or I thought it was interesting. I started deconstructing my faith because for me to have stayed where I was at, I was going to go insane. For me to stay where I was at, I was going to become a fake person who didn't believe in the things that I was hearing preached, who saw Jesus this way, but was in a group that saw Jesus this other way. I knew that I needed to move on if I was going to grow. And I know I needed to move on because I feel like that's where following after Jesus was taking me. Sometimes it takes an incredible leap of faith to leave. And another leap of faith to say that you're worth it enough to leave. And as we begin the ending of the show, I leave you here with the words of you two from the song Walk On. And I know it aches and your heart it breaks and you can only take so much. Walk on. Leave it behind. You've got to leave it behind. All that you fashion, all that you make, all that you build, all that you break, all that you measure, all that you steal, all that you feel, and all that you reason, all that you care, all that you sense, all that you speak, all you dress up, and all that you scheme, all you create, and all that you wreck, and all that you hate. You've got to leave it behind. So that's all I've got this week for you guys. Whoever needed to hear this, I hope you heard it. And before I send you off, just a reminder to share this show and give us a review of Snarky Faith over on Apple Podcasts. It helps to get the word out to new listeners. And if you want to reach out to me directly, hit me up at questions at snarkyfaith.com. I always answer my emails. Thank you for being a part of this show week after week. I appreciate you all. You're amazing. And as I release you into this wild, wide world, I send you out with the holiest amount 
of grace and peace and snark. Don't let their dust get on you. Keep walking. Keep going. I believe in you. See you next time. Peace. You're still here and you hung around for this, you hopefully won't be disappointed. Now, disappointed is, is a really weird term to throw out here because most people in the Christian crazy are human disappointments, right? Right, right. But, but, but in the Christian crazy, we also get to be able to laugh and mock at their stupidity. Yes, yes, yes. We're able to giggle at their griftering and insanity or whatever else. Okay, yeah, you get it. So, this is Hank Kuhnman. This is a church. Just picture all this in your head in a church service going on. So they are praying here. <laughs> They're essentially praying against the election that already happened. And I'll just leave you to it with how specific and how detailed this is. And again, I'm just going to leave this in your mind saying, hey, guess what? This is in the middle of the church service. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. Enjoy. That's all I got today. We speak this over Arizona. We bind any outside interference. We rebuke any attempts of the enemy to try to put their hand into the audits of Arizona. We call forth other states and we say you come to your place of order. You come to your place of alignment. We declare that there shall be other audits that shall begin to arise. We call it forth in Pennsylvania. We call it forth in Georgia. We call it forth in, in, in New Hampshire. We call it forth in Wisconsin and Michigan. Ah, we call it forth even in California. God, we are praying right now that other states would begin to be moved upon by the spirit of truth to continue to bring the truth to light, to expose every lie, to expose every deceit, and to reveal to the earth that the election was in fact stolen and that the righteous hand of God shall see to it that the justice of you, the Almighty God, will be served. Therefore, we call forth for the righteous hand of God to bring restoration and order. And the one who legally, rightfully, constitutionally won the election, we call them forth in their place of authority, in their seat of authority.